You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Mark Boulay, a sustainability educator and behavioural researcher working at Behaviour Works Australia at Monash University. Mark reflects on his early interests, study and work related to zoology, animals and wildlife, which led to further interest and activities in environmental and sustainability community education. Mark offers insights into his teaching approach, which emphasises active and dynamic student-led pedagogies. In relation to his research activities, Mark outlines how to tackle a complex problem and create change. It's often best to start with human behaviour and to look for relevant influences, motivators, biases and other factors that might encourage or stop people from acting. Mark outlines how he and his colleagues designed their behaviour change programs in collaboration with government, not-for-profit, business and other groups to solve environmental problems and challenges. We explore how the research team use human psychology and behaviour change to reduce household food waste by taking the time to understand behaviour from another person's perspective. Finally, we explore some straightforward strategies in this territory, such as the recently launched Use It Up tape by Oz Harvest, and simply looking in your fridge before you go to the shops, writing yourself a shopping list and sticking to it. Mark's aims are to ensure that we, as a society, have processes in place for a healthy and sustainable future. Here's my conversation with Mark Boulay. So good to see you again, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Um, I want to find out a little bit more about what you were interested in when you were either at school or at university, just a little bit more just to get us up to speed with who you are and where you've come from and what what you're interested in. Sure. So so I I guess you would call me a, a a type A personality where I like to have things set in stone and planned and then I stick to what's, that plan. What's for, that? Hang on, I'm going to interrupt. What's a type A personality? I, I don't know. I heard someone describing, I mean, I think essentially it's an anal retentive, obsessive, compulsive personality and they call themselves type A. Um, uh, but I, I like to have things uh, planned out and then I tend to stick to that plan. So when I was in year nine, I decided that I like animals in the outdoors and I wanted to study zoology. So uh, that was then the, I guess, the the motivating goal for the next three to four years of high school. And then I did end up going and studying zoology at the University of Melbourne uh, because I did like, uh, I was fascinated in animals, particularly wildlife. um, And I also like being outdoors. So that seemed to be a fairly natural fit. And I, I studied that for the three or four years. I did honours as well um, at the Australian National University. I was looking at um, peregrine falcon uh, nesting behaviours, which was combined both a love of wildlife, but also, you know, doing adventurous things outdoors with abseils and, you know, ropes and all sorts of things to get into their nests. 
What were um, you looking for? So I was uh, I was I was interested in feeding behaviours of parents and chicks because uh, raptors, of which obviously peregrine falcons are a, a type, have something called reverse sexual dimorphism, which is that females are bigger than males in most birds of prey. The female is bigger than the males, and there's a, an ongoing debate as to why that's the case. But I was interested, does that mean that uh, female chicks are preferenced differently by, by the parents in the nest? So essentially I was spending four or five hours out uh, in a bird hide, perched next to a cliff usually because they nest on cliffs or nest in trees and observing uh, feeding behaviour um, for, for a season. Um, and, uh, and that led me to my honours degree um, at the Australian National University. Uh, and and I, you know, I was at a bit of an impasse, I guess, in terms of what I then wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to travel, but I knew that I didn't enjoy the kind of classic travelling of you try and cram as many countries as you can in a few months and, you know, stay in youth hostels and all the rest. And my father had spent a couple of years uh, working and living in Africa uh, and I was motivated by this idea of some sort of international volunteering or international service. Uh, so I, I joined the Australian Volunteers International and spent a couple of years living in Thailand, uh, um, uh, working in Bangkok in a in a national science education museum. And I was part of the the the, the natural sciences exhibitions um, team, and had a great time. You know, new culture new place, uh, learning new languages. Um, but that, that was that was also um, a bit of a pivotal time because, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been to Bangkok, but, it you know, the impact of humans on the planet is very apparent in cities like Bangkok, you know. Uh, you know, air pollution, water pollution, congestion, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and I was sitting in a bus uh, on my way home, you know, the windows were open and you could see the fumes coming in from the traffic. And I, I guess I realised at that stage that, uh, you know, if, if we don't do something about this sort of stuff, there's not going to be much zoology left for me to study. You know, it's about well, clearly we as humans are having an impact and and it's all very well to become enamored with wildlife and wild places, but there's a threat, there's a threatening process there, which is us, you know, and 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 what we do, um, which which motivated me and 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 made me think it, it I've got to do something else other than just go back and become a, a, a zoology researcher, you know, who I guess writes about the problem but doesn't do anything about the problem as well. So so I went when I after a couple of years there, I came back to Australia and studied a Masters of Environmental Science at Monash. And uh, that was much more focused on, I guess, community engagement, you know, social ecology, um, understanding, first of all, the connection, obviously, between us and and nature, but also trying to, I guess, come to grips with some of the processes of creating change, you know. Um, and then um, I, I, from that, I started to work much more within organisations to try and, I guess, create change from the inside around reducing environmental footprint. I was the sustainability officer for the university at Monash for a few years, um, and then I um, was involved with a program called Green Steps, which is where you and I first met, which was a sustainability training program for students, teaching them how to be change agents within organisations to try and reduce the environmental impact of those organisations. 
Um, and I worked uh, in that program for about, actually, I'm still involved a little bit, but I, I worked pretty intensively there for about seven or eight years um, as their manager. And we expanded across Australia, a number of universities were in, in a few uh, universities overseas as well, in Malaysia and the UK. Um, and I love that. That was wonderful work. Sustainability education is a really satisfying field to be in. We were also kind of trying to push the envelope a little bit in more interactive forms of education and, you know, jump into some slightly more, uh, you know, student-led pedagogies rather than, you know, just continue the sort of quite didactic form of teaching that happens within a university, you know, a lecturer standing at the front and, you know, imparting wisdom to the students. We wanted to try something different. Just to, just to get people up to speed, um, just with a couple of two uh, key terms. Sure. Um, And it's not a trick question. Mm. When you use the word sustainability, Mm. what is that? What does that mean? Yeah, sure. Just for the person in the street. Yep, absolutely. Look, I, I guess that the, the common sort of knee-jerk, uh, I guess, reaction to that is it's got stuff to do with environment, um, and, and I think that's a part of it. But sustainability essentially is ensuring that we have, you know, as as society, we have the processes in place so we can continue to be in society and have healthy, flourishing societies into the future. And that does mean that we need to think about how we interact and impact on the environment, but it also there's an element of social sustainability there as well, you know, health and well-being and community cohesion and those sort of things. Um, and then there's obviously, a, a, you know, an element of economic prosperity and well-being that's a part of it as well. You know, if p- people listening to this want to understand the, 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 the sheer scope of what sustainability means, have a look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You know, there's 17 of them and the, air, the, the the range of topics that they cover, you know, everything from clean water to gender equality, give you a sense as to just how broad a term sustainability is. Um, my area tends to be focused more on environmental sustainability. So I'm interested in how do we um, uh, reduce energy consumption, reduce water consumption, uh, be more sustainable with our, re- our general resource use, um, recycle those sort of things, um, as well as, you know, how do we maintain and, and conserve um, biodiversity and, and ecosystems and those sort of things as well. So within the broad range of sustainability, I tend to focus more on the environmental stuff. So that's still the zoologist coming out, you know, in terms yep. of my interest areas. Okay. There was another word in there that snuck in. Yes. Pedagogies. Yes. What nice. does that mean? <laughs> so as, as a as a person who's a non uh I wouldn't see myself to be a, a, an education uh, educational academic or expert by any way Me by any means so the the way that I think about it is you know forms of teaching and learning you know yeah. so, so with so, your student example yes, you were yep. getting them so that it's not just they're they're not just sitting there being quiet and listening yes you're yep. getting them up out of their seats. They're yes. active. They're doing things in the classroom. You're kind of interacting with them. They're Absolutely. interacting with each other, I suspect. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So Green Steps came, you know, was there were two motivations behind Green Steps. Um, first of all, it was set up by a group of students who wanted to create change, uh, you know, when it comes to environmental issues, you know, climate change and so forth. They wanted to do their bit. But they also were, I guess, reacting against the way that they were being taught within universities, which is, you know, the expert sits at the front, 
you know, transmits information for an hour and a half. Usually everybody's asleep by the end of it. We, we call that the sage on the stage. There you go. They're exactly right. You know, chalk and talk, yeah, sage on stage, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the students said, well, you know, we've been doing stuff. We've been activists and we've 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 tried, you know, to create change within schools and within the organisations that we work in. We've got something to contribute to this conversation as well, right, particularly – 20 years ago, sustainability and environmental sustainability was very much a kind of new idea. So it was as much about hearing from the voices within the classroom as opposed to just having it come from the sage on stage. But it was also thinking about, well, maybe the person at the front is more a facilitator of learning rather than necessarily the kind of font of all knowledge, you know. Um, yes. We, we call that the guide on the side. Nice. There you go. Perfect. Exactly. So what I think we're, it sounds like we're in furious agreement here and there's a lot of alignment. Um, so, yeah, you know, we, we we played around with different ways of teaching and learning, essentially, and tried to make it much more interactive, much more dynamic. And, and really the best sessions were often where the sage on stage or the guide beside would disappear completely and it was entirely student-led, you know, and, and the students would be running the show and would be teaching each other and, and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's a little a little digression into green steps. And then while while teaching green steps, one of the areas that we looked at was human behavior, human psychology, what makes humans tick, and how do we need to be aware of that when we're trying to create change within communities, within organizations. Exactly. So so behavior change became more and more an area of interest and passion for me. Um, Green Steps was based within an institute within Monash called the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. And that had set up while I was working for Green Steps, uh, a specialist team called Behaviour Works, which essentially were behavioural or Behaviour Works Australia, I should say, which essentially were behavioural scientists who applied behavioural thinking and the discipline of behavioural science to sustainability challenges. And one happy day, they had an opening on their research team. I applied for it and was accepted. So I moved over to academia in a sense, but really applied academia. And uh, and we can talk a bit about the work I do in Behaviour Works in a moment. But as part of that, I also then jumped into doing a, a PhD on food waste and behaviour, so household food waste and behaviour. Um, and, and that's an area uh, that I'm continuing to work in at the moment. And now my role at BehaveWorks is I'm a, one of the senior research fellows and I also lead their environment portfolio, which is a group of behavioural science nerds who essentially apply their powers for good in the environmental sustainability space. Um, and we do a lot of work there. So I think that gets us up to speed to me right now. <laughs> and within time as well, Mark. <laughs> You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Okay, I have a question. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about behavioural science, mm -hmm. how does that necessarily relate? Or why is that a good strategy for addressing environmental concerns or issues or problems? Sure. So a couple of reasons. I mean, um, one is, you know, but, and I guess we, we this is also a useful time to um, just define a couple of things as well so that people listening understand what I mean when I say the word behaviour. 
So, you know, you think about humans, you know, we think, we feel, and we act. Um, behavior, a behavioral scientist is interested in the action element of that. You know, we're, we're, um, we're interested in what people do. And when I I use the term behavior. What I mean is an observable action. So when you see somebody doing something, that is our unit of analysis. That often gets conflated in people's minds with values and attitudes and emotions and feelings and all that sort of stuff, or even education. Now, as a behavioral scientist, those are interesting, but only insofar as they might motivate or prevent a behavior from occurring. So, so just to kind of clarify... Yeah. Because yep. I'm, you know, coming from TAFE, TAFE yep. land and, sure. uh, you know, I'm a former school teacher. Sure. But just to clarify, mm. clarify, it's things that people, if another person's watching, they mm. can actually physically see the person doing. Exactly right. So they're picking exactly. up a box or they're yep, that's taking right. something. So in a lot of ways it demystifies it'll it considerably. It's yes. kind of in the world. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, it's it's turning the tap off, turning the light on, going, driving your car, jumping on public transport, you know, all things that you can see people doing. Now, that is sometimes, as I said before, confused with things like attitudes and emotions and education and all the rest. We see those as being what we would call potential influences of behaviour. So, the, you know, your particular value set may influence you to do particular things or your, your education or your knowledge may influence you to do other things. But then there's other, you know, social what other people around you are doing, you know, social norms can influence you to act in particular ways. The skills I, I, would, you have, I suspect that, that territory gets very complex. Exactly right. But um, so I guess for us, the unit of analysis that we're interested in is what people do. And then a lot of the work that we try and, uh, I guess, engage in is to pull apart what motivates those behaviours or when it comes to behaviour change, what prevents the behaviours that we're interested in seeing, what prevents those from manifesting? You know, we want people to take more public transport, for example, as a behaviour. What's stopping people from doing that currently? And what are the things that might engage more people to do that, if you like? So when it comes to behavioural science, we're interested in first of all, understanding barriers and drivers to behaviour, and then we're interested in understanding how they can be applied to create behaviour change. Yeah. So do you do you start by, I suspect the answer is maybe you do both, but um, do you start by just simply observing what people are doing mm. as a starting point, or do you have something in mind where you'd like to lead them, like, yeah, oh, nice. I wish people were doing more of this mm -hmm. and work backwards from that to figure exactly. out why they're not doing it or how does it work? Spot on, Mark, the second part. So so we always start with the behaviour that we're interested in. So, you know, we we work, so, so behaviour works, all of our work is external to the university. So we work with uh, government, but the uh, federal, uh, state departments, state agencies, not-for-profit not groups, some business groups um, on particular health and environmental primarily challenges that they're trying to address. So I do a lot of work with groups such as, um, say, New South Wales Environmental Protection Authority or Sustainability Victoria, Department of Environment in New South Wales, the Office of Environment and Climate Change. And they come to us and say, we've got this challenge. We're trying to reduce or we're trying to increase energy efficiency within households, for example because, you know, we're using up too much energy. And so what we then, the first question that we always start with is what do you want people to do? 
And and it's a simple question, but it's actually quite a complex question, really, because we kind of have a vague idea of, oh, we need them to do better, but articulating what do we need them to do? Is it to use the air conditioner less or to turn off lights more or to install solar panels and those sort of things? So we yeah, always start with the behaviour, to your point, yes. How broad do you get, like, in terms of, because I'm um, living and breathing at the moment, um, performance gaps in workplaces, and then mm-hmm. that's linked to a learning outcome. Mm-hmm. And you can get quite broad about things like improve a knowledge of the corporate values or sure. something. But you can get very specific. Yeah. Sometimes yep. one is better than the other. So yep. with the example of an air conditioner or something, mm-hmm. do you kind of yeah, how do you approach it? Specific yeah. or broad or both so or depends? We usually start off broad and then we narrow down. So I've, um, look, I'm, I'm going to take you to my passion area, which is household food waste. And I've been doing some work in the last two to three years with Oz Harvest, who are the national food rescue uh, charity. They were interested in, uh, as part of their work, um, of engaging households to reduce household food waste. They thought that was a really good kind of parallel to their food rescue work. So they said to me, look, we, we want to in, we want to design uh, an intervention or a campaign to try and get people to reduce household food waste. So I said, okay, what do you want people to do? And so we started really broad, right, and essentially through a series of workshops with both us Harvest staff as well as other practitioners and experts in food waste in Australia, we literally brainstormed in a series of sessions, all the different things that people could do to reduce household food waste, right? And we, it's a few iterations, but we ended up with a list of about 20 or 30, right? Different behaviours. We spent a lot of time specifying them really clearly so they were an observable behaviour, right? They had a target person, they had a context, they had a time and so forth. Achievable. Um, achieve, yeah, exactly. There was a bit of the achievable. Although achievable, we worry about less at this particular stage. It, it's less smart as opposed to we, the acronym that we use is ATAC, which is every behaviour has an actor, it has a target, it has an action, a context and a time, right, which essentially said, you know, you nodding in your office at 10 o'clock in the morning, that is the observable behaviour, right? That's using you as the audience, the the. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so that we're really trying to be really specific about the behaviours that we're, we're interested in, but also quite broad, you know, keeping it really, really broad. But then we then took, we went through a process then of essentially prioritising because you can't design a useful campaign that, you know, engages people in 20 or 30 different behaviours at once because they'll just become overwhelming and they'll end up switching off. Mm. So the point then is how do we narrow down? And we took them through a process of essentially narrowing in on two or three key behaviours. And those were behaviours to do with uh, using up food that's in the fridge before you go and buy more of the same. Because what happens is, I don't know if you think about your fridge, you know, there's that, there's those two or three carrots from the last shop, you know, that are at the bottom of the crisper and we forget that they're there and then we go and buy more carrots, right? Or, you know, the half a stick of butter that's not used or the the, the meal of rice, you know, and we we then, without using it, we go and buy more. And the, the, the one of the areas that Oz Harvest was interested in is how do we get people to use it up more? And we particularly identified a behaviour that we'd like to see, which is once a week, you make a meal that combines all the ingredients that you need to use up before you go out and buy more, right? So that was the behaviour we were interested in. Um, and we then, there's a big issue when it comes to people like us thinking about behaviour change, 
particularly people who work, say, in the environmental sustainability, because we then make all sorts of assumptions as to what might motivate that behaviour. I was going to ask um, Mm. how many kind of like just lay people or, you know, just members of the general public were involved. Did you go and look at in other people's fridges or, you know, how did... So that's the next step. Yeah. I I think, Mark, you're you're inherently a behavioural scientist because you're (laughs) asking all the perfect questions that move me on to the next part of the process. I'm like the stooge in the audience. It's it's fantastic because what what often happens is, um, you know, in a lot of uh, the design of a lot of campaigns and interventions where uh, behaviour, you know, we try and change a particular behaviour, is the people that... uh, are involved in the in the, in the design, put themselves into the shoes of their audience and think, well, what would motivate me, right? But we're the worst people to be thinking about what would motivate lay people because we're, we're the weird ones, right? This is, when it comes to sustainability, this is our bread and butter. This is our nine to five. So one of the key things that this uh, uh, steps that we do when it comes to behavior change is to understand the behavior from the perspective of our target audience, lay people, you know, in your terms. And that's when things like observations and surveys and interviews and so those kind of research tools, those that's when those come into play. So what we did was we ran a couple of surveys and we did some focus groups where we actually asked people about the behavior of combining a meal once once a week, making a meal that combines things, you know, in your fridge. What makes it hard for you to do that? What makes it easy for you to do that? Who approves, who disapproves and so forth, right? So the, so we're, take, we're removing ourselves with all our not useful assumptions and trying to understand it from the perspective of those people who we're trying to change, if you like. So, so what did you find out? From yeah, so a couple of things. One is uh, children... Young children are tricky for for parents, and often parents don't use up food because they're worried the children are going to be bored with another the same thing again. The, but one of the key things that we um, we've we found out was that busy lives. You know, a lot of us are on autopilot when it comes to cooking and shopping. We buy the same thing, we cook the same thing. We don't have time to really check in our fridges, you know, things get crammed and pushed, fridges are often full. Um, so Ozharvest then went ahead and designed what they call their use it up tape, right, which the idea was it was a brightly coloured bit of tape, which people could then use to demarcate an area in their fridge where items that need to be used up can go. Or what we actually found that people were doing is they're just tearing tape apart and sticking it to items as a bit of a visual prompt. So the point was the intervention came because we found that people aren't doing the behaviour, not because they don't know that food waste is a problem or, you know, uh, don't realise the terrible impacts of food waste or they want to do something about it. They just don't notice. So the, the intervention was designed with the insights that we gathered as a result of understanding the behaviour from the perspective of the target audience. And so they designed this use it up tape um, and we actually trialled that last year and we found that, in households that used it, they reduced their food waste by 40% over the two weeks that we were testing it. Quite a substantial reduction in food waste, particularly in the areas of food waste that we typically throw out, which is fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, bread and dairy. Um, so those, so in those particular food groups, um, we found the biggest reduction, which led to this overall reduction of 40%. Um, and actually, Ozharvest in two days are... Uh, um, one of the trams in Melbourne is about to have a 
have its the 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 trams about to be designed with new advertising about the use it up tape and they're going to be launching this as a as a national campaign. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Hey. Yeah, it's a really mm. nice um I guess the narrative idea of a narrative arc. It's mm. like it's a nice uh solid sort of like intriguing case study or you yes. know story yeah. to tell how you yeah, yeah, kind of your right. aim, how you went about it and mm. then what resulted and then mm. I really I can visualize this tape. What color was it? That's so it's bright. It's bright. Yeah, I don't know if you know the Oz Harvest brand, but it's a very bright yellow and and then a, a very quite a stark black. So it's it's in those colors, which is oh, perfect yeah. for a visual prompt, right, within a fridge because it really stands out. But I guess to your point and and to summarize the sort of long rant that I went on about the project, we started with the behavior, right, and we worked our way backwards. So we start the behavior was our first kind of priority. And then we then tried to understand that behavior from the perspective of those who were interested in engaging to avoid making our own assumptions. And we used standard research tools to do that, to unpack that behavior from their perspective. And the design of the campaign came from those behavioral insights. Design. Yes. I like that yes. word. Yes. Now, Mark, my bread did just ping, <laughs> so I might uh, I might just quickly duck out and, uh, Good and, timing. and do it. <laughs> just a moment, one second. Okay. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you've introduced a whole range of ideas, but then the fundamental question is, well, what's the point? Where, why, why all this behaviour change? Why is it so kind of relevant to, to our current world, current society? Yeah, and I have, I was attracted originally to the discipline of, of behavioural science and I guess a behavioural approach to looking at particular issues for a couple of reasons, which I think are still really relevant today and, and still feel quite fresh and, and vivid to me today. The, the first is I, I get a bit impatient sometimes with, say, you know, these sort of constant rejoinders that were asked to, to kind of, you know, take a systems perspective or be really holistic and be really broad and so forth. I, and, 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 and any of your listeners that love systems thinking and all that kind of stuff are going to be yelling at me now. And I, I can see the place of systems thinking and being I like, really broad. I like systems You thinking. like it. And look, and, and, I, and I, I can see its place. I get interested by what it as well. What are you saying? It kind of gets too abstracted or something? Bingo. <laughs> right. And, and, and I, I think you can, you can disappear into your own navel a little bit too quickly with that, <laughs> you know, because you're constantly, you know, systems are dynamic, they're fluid, so you're constantly having to update and, you know, integrate and expand your boundaries or narrow your boundaries. And I find that a lot of the systems thinking tends to mean you stay with the problem, which is fine. You need to stay with the problem for a while, but at some point you do need to shift over to actually have a crack at a solution, right? You can't keep thinking about the system and, and bemoaning how terrible the system is and exploring it in finite detail without actually translating that into something, right? There needs to be some kind of a, a pointy edge to this sort of stuff. And, and what I love about behavioral science is it gives you a pointy edge, right? And we actually, in 
the Behavioural Works Australia um, methods that we designed a few years ago, um, kind of formal uh, process to apply behavioural thinking to sustainability challenge, and we call that quite unimaginatively the method. We always start with a systems perspective of a problem, you know, to under get that holistic view and to understand dynamics and relationships and feedback loops and all those sort of things. But at some stage, we tick over into, okay, what do we need people to do? Like, what are some of the, and, and what I like about a behavioural approach to things is at some stage you're looking at, well, what are the actions that we need on the ground in order to solve this problem? Now, yes, unintended consequences might come and bite us in the ass a little bit later on, or yes, we may have gotten the problem a little bit, the action a bit wrong, or have only narrowed in a little bit, you know, on one particular group, but at least we're doing something. At least we're making a start at trying to address a, a you know, a particular problem. And so I like a behavioural approach to things because the focus on actions and behaviour gives you that pointy edge to actually have a crack at a solution. So that's the first the first thing. And I actually think, you know, I'm being deliberately provocative. I actually think systems thinking and behavioural thinking work hand in hand very well. Um, and we actually have a couple of people who did their PhDs on systems within our behaviour works team uh, also. Mm. So I, I think I, there's, a, there's a nice alignment. I'm just going to um, just just writing in on the felt, sure. the felt experience. I feel <laughs> as though there's a, a bit of a tension or something. Yes, like, I think under there the is. hood between. Yeah, yeah. What is that? Like it's so, kind of because systems can be nice and neat and, yes. and ordered. Yeah. You yeah. says Mr. Former Science Teacher, mm. but like what's what are what are the cultural obstacles maybe to this behavioural approach? Well, I mean, I think that it a it requires you to take a punt at a at, you know at, at a at a, a leverage point, and I think that maybe becomes a little bit challenging because you could be wrong, you know, or you you may have misread the system or something like that. I think it you know it requires you to at some stage put the blinkers on, you know, and 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 to kind of come in and narrowing as well, you know, and and that's often and quite rightly I think, you know, behavioural science is accused of going too granular, right, coming in too much, um, and that we, you know, ignore the contexts and the systems within which those behaviours and actions occur, right? So hence my kind of point before about I think systems thinking and behavioural thinking hand in hand work very well. They keep each other honest, if you like, you know, means that us behavioural guys don't go too narrow, but the systems guys don't always stay at the kind of broad systems level and maybe at some stage go in to kind of dig into the detail a little bit as well here, you know. It's almost like the kind of whole history of human thinking or something, yes, human think thinking so. and behaviour or yeah, I think like so. existence is within <laughs> this sort of mysterious, yeah. like um, bundled, yeah. con well, not a conundrum, but uh, I don't want to use the word system twice, yeah. but it's, <laughs> it's twice the thing that's like the system is within something that's that little bit broader. Yeah. yeah. And look, and I guess it's, you know, it's the, the, no, no, no tool, no model, no way of thinking is perfect for all situations. You know, it is appropriate for certain situations and not appropriate for other. And I've always been attracted to behavioral science because I, I, I like to feel that my work is being targeted and, you know, it has a, has a, an, an action in mind um, and is solutions focused, if you like. And, and I always felt that a, a behavioral approach, at least for me, has allowed me to do that. Um, you know, 
the the other reason I love a behavioral approach to things is for what we talked about previously when it came to household food waste, um, which is it, it keeps us honest and it means we avoid making assumptions, you know, around what motivates behaviors. And it it opens up the toolbox a little bit of of what might be, you know, become a solution. So often, you know, we, we tend to think, say, for climate change or for waste issues or all the rest, that oh, gosh, we've got this big problem. People just need more education. They just need more knowledge. They just need more information about it. They just need to understand this is a problem and then they will do something, right? That kind of logic behind, you know, we give them more knowledge and information and then they will do the things that need to be done, right? And we will, know. Will yeah. they? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so, we, you know, but, the, you know, everyone knows that that logic doesn't hold up and yet that is still the implicit logic for a lot of our engagement, whether it's with students or community or within organisations and so forth. And behavioural thinking, to my mind, um, I guess turns that on its head a little bit and makes us appreciate what, for the people that we're trying to engage with, who we need to, you know, who we need to do particular things, we're understanding from their perspective what might motivate or what might prevent them from engaging in those behaviours. And then we're designing the campaign based on that rather than our assumptions of what will work. And I guess you've got your 40% decrease in food waste yeah. data to yeah. bring to the exactly. table as part of the conversation. Yeah, as exactly well. right. Because because what, what it means is if you like, if, if you, I guess, are happy to realise that human behaviour is motivated by more than just information and knowledge, it's straight, it gets you into the areas of, you know, what are the unconscious motivators of behaviour? So that's where, what are they? that's where behavioural nudges and stuff happen, you know. What so are for they, example, though? Can you tell us? <laughs> so there's a few things, right? So, you know, some of the unconscious modes. So, a, a, there's over 250 different unconscious motivators of behaviour that have been identified. And we just need a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so they're called biases, right? Um, and that's okay. been the work of... Um, of uh, people like uh, D uh, Daniel Kahneman, so thinking fast and slow. He's a behavioural oh, economist. Yes. He, a lot of his work was to understand what are these unconscious motivators of human behaviour, which he called biases. So things like, for example, sunk cost bias, where we tend to preference things where we've already committed time and resources for, even though they may not necessarily work. Right. What's, the, what's the, an example of that? So, like, well, the perfect example of a sunk cost bias is the Mikey ticketing system, which Melbourne has been struggling with for 15 years. And rather than dumping the thing and just trying something entirely different, we've had successive governments just continue to pump more money into something which really has not worked all that well since it has gone. And that's a sunk cost bias, right? We have committed and we've we've engaged resources and time. So it makes us even more reluctant to walk away from it and try something completely different. So right, if you buy a, a dud, like a, a, a kitchen appliance that's really costs a yeah. lot of money, but it's a bit yeah. of a dud, yeah. you don't want to yeah. admits that you've wait, been duped kind of thing. Exactly right. More likely to hang on to it, yeah. suffer through try, it. Try and fix it. You know, I mean, you think yeah. about any car that you've ever had that's a total lemon, you know, you, you know you, you, you're reluctant to just go, okay, let's just cut our losses on this, right? We don't like that. There's a thing called confirmation bias. When we read or watch a, read a text or watch a video, we tend to remember and look for the information that aligns with what we already think about a particular issue. 
right? So climate change, for example, that that has been found for certain people, confirmation bias means that people might read an IPCC report and only fixate on the things that confirm what they already think. For example, climate deniers tend to fix fixate on the things where scientists say, you know, there's a degree of uncertainty or, you know, we are 95% confident or there was an ice age, a mini ice age, you know, 100 years ago. People fixate on that. So that's a confirmation bias, for example. Uh, but there's a lot of biases. But the point is what, what you know, we, we know from, you know, decades of psychology and behavioural science and other sciences that look at what motivates people, political science, consumer research, um, we have started to identify a range of different things, both conscious and unconscious, that motivate human behaviour, above and beyond knowledge and awareness. And what I find refreshing about a behavioural approach is it means that you are given a broader range of tools to play with when it comes to creating change. You know, Yes, education plays a role in it, but so does infrastructure and so does people's skills and so do people's emotions and so do social norms and all these other things. And, and so the, the work that we do is try and understand of everything that could influence, what are the main influences? And based on the behaviour, those could be very different. Right. How do you how do you kind of navigate through this whole? It's just like a yeah. whole universe of yes. potential things that may or may not be mm. really important. How do mm. you navigate through all of that? Yeah. So I mean, again, you start with the behaviour, and by understanding an open exploration of that behaviour from people's perspective, so observational work or surveys or interviews, you're starting to see particular trends that emerge in the data, which say. It looks like it's a, you know, a skills deficit, or it looks like you know people are really influenced by other people around them. So you use the data that you collect essentially to say, well, what are what we call the salient influences here, right? Which are the ones that salient, the most common, that the strongest, the most recurring influencer when it comes to that particular behaviour. So essentially, that's the process of research. Yeah, is to answer that particular question of all the possible influences. What's relevant? To the behavior and the people we're interested in. And that's a lot of the stuff that we do at BehaviorWorks. So I, I run a master's course as well as part of, um, well, I used to run, but I teach into one of the units. And there's always a couple of things that we sort of tell the students, you know, if, if you do nothing else, if you remember nothing else when it comes to behavior and behavior change, here are the two things, you know, that you need to be thinking about. So I could... I can give those to you if you like. Oh, no, we're we're on. We're this is we're recording. We're, I'm on. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Bring it on. What so, are those two? So, so, so I guess the, the 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 two things are, you know, from a behavioural perspective, if you're interested in in tackling a problem, start with the behaviour. So spend the time to actually be clear on what you want people to do. So you in like in your example, the reducing food is too yes. broad. But you yes. want to you want to hone in a little yes, bit. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. Hone in on what you want, and that and that is harder than it looks because there's a range of possibilities for any complex problem. There's a number of things people could do to try and reduce, say, climate emissions or food waste or water consumption and so forth. So start on the behaviour. What do you want people to do, and then work backwards to try and peel out what are the main influences for that particular behaviour. Put your own assumptions to, side, to the side and take the time to understand that behaviour from the perspective of what we call your target audience. 
And even speaking to one person, whether it's a student or whether it's a member of the community or whether it's a member of the target group you're interested in engaging, even if you just speak to one person, it's better than you sitting at your desk and designing a program based on what motivates you because more than likely you'll get it wrong because you are not your target audience, whether you're an educator, whether you're a person who's a sustainability officer within a council or whatever, you are not the people you're trying to change. You need to understand that from their perspective. So so if you've got any final words for um, like a person that's there like wanting to reduce food waste, oh, yes. what, yeah. what, what could they possibly do? Maybe like a little self-reflection almost. Excellent. They could, they yes. could take your steps. Fantastic. And do their own behavioural yes. audit or something. Yep. So the first thing to always do uh, when you, if you're interested in tackling food waste is to do a, couple of days of a mini food waste audit. So just pay attention to how much food you're throwing away. Keep notes. You don't need to keep it, but just as you're throwing, just keep notes. What are you throwing out? How much is it? Because people waste more than they think, right? That most of us think we're, we're doing, we do a lot better than we actually do, okay? And then usually what the kind of common catch-all solution is, buy what you need and cook what you bought, so buy what you need So look at your fridge before you go shopping, take a list and then stick to the list. So buy what you need and then cook what you've got. And once that's done, then go out and buy more. <laughs> that's that always for us is the mantra, certainly in my house at least, is are we buying what we need and are we cooking what we've bought? And then with that kind of principle in mind, you will tend to reduce your food waste. In this episode, I chatted with Mark Boulay, a sustainability educator and behavioural researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Behaviour Works Australia and other sustainability research and resources. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.